0: Uh, Good to be here with you today. We started off last week looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We're going to be looking through uh, this letter for uh, the next number of weeks, at least as long as I'm doing Friday morning devotions. That's as long as we'll do 1 Corinthians, because it's a long enough book that I think I can promise that. Uh, And uh, anyway, last time, what we saw in the first 17 verses was really Paul anchoring this Corinthian church that's filled with problems in their true identity. So right off the bat, instead of going at them full tilt with all of his problems that he has with them, and they do have problems, uh, he instead declares to them multiple times and in multiple ways, you are forgiven, you are sanctified, you are uh, filled by the Spirit and gifted, and for that I give thanks to you, I get, or I give thanks for you. And I I just am so uh, grateful to God um, on your behalf and for what he's doing in your midst. Then in verses 10 through 17, he begins to address their first problem in the letter, the first of many. And what we saw last week is that that was division. And it was division uh, over various teachers in the church. Now, I mean, when people divide over that kind of thing today, it's at least understandable because there truly are Um, Different teachers teaching very different things, and so, you know, there can be good reasons for why you might side with one teacher over another, Um, but, but in this case, what was particularly silly about their division is that there was no distinction in what they were actually teaching. Uh, so some were saying they were of Apollos, some were saying I'm, I'm of Paul, some were saying I'm of Peter, and even the really hyper-spiritual people were saying, well I'm just of Jesus, no creed but Christ for me, thank you very much. And so Paul sort of levels the playing field and says this is all silly, none of these you know teachers are, are divided, none of them died for you, only Christ died for you, and that's what ultimately matters. And so now Continuing on in this theme of Paul wanting to correct their problem with um, a lack of unity, he's going to point them to what actually unites a church. What actually does bring us together as a body? And this is what he says, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, very important note right up front here from from Paul. What he is acknowledging is two things. One, he is aware that the word about a crucified God, specifically Jesus Christ, is naturally to the world going to come off as sounding foolish. Specifically, he's going to mention two groups that it really doesn't make any sense to at all both Jews and and Greeks. Uh, Greeks here is basically synonymous with another way of saying the Greek speaking world or the Hellenistic world. It's a way of saying non-Jews. And there's a reason for why they found it to be so baffling and why people generally find the word of the cross baffling. Number one, when you think of a cross, especially at that time, you're thinking of an instrument of execution and tremendous torture. Number two, you're thinking of an instrument that is used to punish wrongdoers, evildoers, uh, unjust people. People that are supposed to at least, um, that you're supposed to at least be protected from. Nothing, Nothing about the cross is what we have sort of made it today. Like no one would ever, ever, ever think to wear a golden cross around their neck. Or to get a cross tattooed on their body. That is something that Christianity has changed. And especially back in the first century, it was only identified with an instrument of torture. Add to that the idea that the Christian message presents the, not a God of uh, ultimately like the center of Christianity is not presenting a God of great power and majesty, though he has those things. But it chooses instead to emphasize his his moment of what seems like his greatest shame. The word of the cross, yes, sounds foolish. It sounds unreasonable. It doesn't sound like anything people in that day and age would have wanted. And so, so Paul recognizes this up front. He says, you know what? I know that out there, this word of the cross sounds crazy, but to us, That's what ultimately unites us. That's what brings us together. Now he'll go on here, verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now a very important note here, I just want to note that Paul knows, he knows that by focusing on this message of Christ crucified, that it's going to be a stumbling block for a lot of people. He knows it's not going to be popular. He knows it's not going to be the key to having great church growth. He understands that. He understands that this message may not create a big, powerful, mega church. It may, it can but he understands if it doesn't. And yet, here's why he keeps preaching it, because that is where the power actually is. The power is shown in a crucified God. And the reason that's the power is because that's how, that's how we see the extent of his love for us. When we look there, not only are we reminded that we're all flawed and all in need of redemption, that none of us should be divided from anybody else because we all are sinners before the cross. But we're also reminded of the extent that God was willing to go to to have us of his own as his own children in fellowship with him. And so Paul says, Yeah, I realize, you know, the Jews, they demand signs. Well, look to the Old Testament. That's exactly right. They had good reason for expecting that when the Messiah came, that there was gonna be great power. They thought he would you know, kick the Roman occupiers off the throne, that he would take over the throne and that there would be peace and harmony ruling from Israel forever. It's not what happened. That's not what the God of Christianity presents. On the other hand, what are the, what are the Greeks steeped in? Wisdom literature, specifically the philosophers. You have a whole culture that has been steeped in the ideas of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And they have been told that the greatest good is wisdom. The greatest thing that you can expect from God is wisdom. In in other words, like God is going to show you, his primary function is going to show you how to live rightly. And Paul says, that's not what the cross does either. No, the cross tells you, in fact, The way to life is to die. That first one must die before being raised again. Oh, none of it makes any sense. Add to that, that in the Greek-speaking world, the idea of God coming in the flesh was completely ridiculous and absurd. Completely! because the whole idea presented by the Greek philosophers that there was sort of a united front on was that matter in and of itself was evil, that the only thing that was good was immaterial. And here Christianity comes presenting a God in flesh, being tortured, feeling real pain with us, weeping real tears with us. This seems, again, foolish. Ah, but to those who are called, it's the power and wisdom of God. To those who believe, when we hear that we have a God who sheds tears alongside of us, it fills us with hope. When we hear we have a God who loves us enough to die for us and has raised to victory over death, it fills us with hope. So Paul will go on, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That was especially true in the early days. We know that in the early days of the church, there were basically, you know, a few groups of people that populated it. The poor, uh, slaves, women. All extremely powerless groups of people in the Roman Empire. And yet, what did the gospel, who did the gospel appeal to the most? Who did this word of the cross, of the suffering God, appeal to the most? It was the outsider. It was the outcast. It was the sinner. It was the person that had screwed up their life. Those people heard this word of the cross and said, that's a God who will be with me in my struggles and in my suffering. I want that. I need that. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. And why does he do that? Why? I mean, what is God's deal with wanting to choose the lowly things, the foolish things, the unimportant things to work through? Here's the key. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Getting back to the context here about Paul addressing division. When it's all said and done, the reason there's dividing happening and the reason it tends to happen for us today is because one group of people thinks that they're better than another group of people. One group of people thinks they're more righteous than another group of people. One group of people thinks they're more deserving of honor than another group of people. And Paul says, no, remember. Remember who you are apart from Christ. You're lowly, you're foolish, you have nothing particular, particularly great to offer to God. And yet God chose you Purely out of his grace. God died for you purely out of his grace. God rose for you purely out of his grace. And he does it purely out of his grace so that you might not boast except in him. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You think you're wiser than them? No, you're not. Because Christ is the wisdom we need. You think you're more righteous than that group over there, God? No, you're not. Because Christ is our righteousness. You think you're more sanctified? No, you're not because Christ is your sanctification and guess what? We're all redeemed by that same Christ. That's what Paul's saying says, it's all in Christ that we have those things. It's not in this teacher or that teacher, this church or that church, but it's in Christ. And that is where we find our unity as a body of believers. He is the head, we are the body. Yes, diverse and yes, differently gifted, but all. Under his head, one body, one church. So that is our hope, and that's the good news for us today. Uh, Next week, we'll continue talking about some of these themes as we enter into chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. I want to remind you again to join us on Sunday morning. I'll be preaching.